This is They Create Worlds, episode 141, The Console Market of the 70s and 80s, part 2. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, Alex, I have this entire store that I have ransacked with game parts, computer parts, all sorts of electronics in order to figure out some way to get us back to the future. Since I'm going through all of these computer and console parts anyway, you might as well entertain me and maybe our listeners about what the heck it is that I'm even touching here. (laughs) Well, I suppose at this point, you're probably at about 1977, maybe inching into 1978, right? Yeah, give or take. Sure. I suppose at that point, we are at a very delicate stage in the whole process, so try not to meddle in the timeline too much, where we have these three categories of electronic games, as we discussed last time, that are mixing and matching in a way that isn't really helping most of them. At the low end, the very low end, sometimes as low as $20, $30, you have electronic handheld games that are largely LED-based games, though in 1978 they're going to spread out a little from that into some more exciting lights and sounds and such. Then after that, you have the dedicated console market that had been so on fire in 1976 and was slightly less on fire in 1977, and looks like it may get even worse in 1978. Spoiler alert, it will. Then you have this new category of programmable system that is just starting to come in. Of course, Fairchild released the Channel F in 76, but they got very few units to market that year, so it's really 77 that this is starting, with the Channel F getting slightly broader distribution, RCA of all people coming in and having a go, and then, of course, in the fall, Atari coming along. As we hinted at last time, this is going to create a problem in the market that means that these programmable consoles don't actually just take off right away. As we said, you think about the VCS, you think about playing the Atari if you're a certain age, just as people the age of Jeffrey and I would play the Nintendo as opposed to playing video games. That's how synonymous Atari was. But they didn't get there all at once. And the reason is because of this mess that's been created in the market that needs to be sorted out. And so that's where our tale will begin here in part two of our look at the early console market, essentially just in the United States or North America. So we've gone over a lot of how everyone got together creating consoles, we had fun with those dedicated systems. Then we were like, you know, there's only so many transistors I can slap onto this thing. Let's try this newfangled thing called programming. Ooh, that sounds fun. How does one do this programming? Typically, you write some code, hand it off to a compiler that then assembles it into machine code, then the computer takes that machine code and does a lot of addition really, really quickly. (laughs) That's right. 
driving all of this, at least in the systems we're talking about, I realize not in every system ever made, is the microprocessor that is at the heart of everything and which is what makes all of this possible. We're to the point now in the late 70s where you can put a microprocessor in a consumer electronic. It won't be just completely out of reach of the consumer. going to be more expensive, but on the plus side, then you can build out a library. And so that's what we have going on with the Fairchild Channel F, with the RCA Studio 2, and then with the Atari VCS. 1976-77, this is really still the period of the dedicated console. There's really not much going on there. It is a new technology. It's a more expensive technology. RCA and Fairchild come in at 150. Atari comes in at about 190 or 199. Fairchild realizes they priced it too low and jumps up to 170. So you're talking about systems that are in a range of 150 and 200 dollars. Again, in late 1970s money, that would be much closer to five, six hundred dollars in the modern day. I mentioned briefly that Fairchild had to jump up their price, and and we did a Fairchild episode where we talked about this, but a theme that is going to run through all of these consoles in this period is running afoul of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, which is the administrative agency in the United States that is responsible for regulating the airwaves, the frequency at which things are broadcast around to be picked up by various receivers like your television. The FCC is a really fascinating history unto itself. They came about mostly to regulate all of radio. Originally, we had wireless radio, wireless telegraph, then wireless voice. Then you got ham radio getting into it. You had military applications of radio. So they try to make it this common space. There's only so many frequencies that work well for doing long-distance communication. So you need to regulate that in some way so that people don't overlap each other. As a result of that, they really went gung-ho on the whole shielding thing. (laughs) So we don't want you to have interference that's going to potentially interfere with other people's communications. For example, there used to be a thing where a ham radio operator would have to proactively figure out, am I transmitting radio waves that is going to affect other people? Because a lot of these electronics were highly sensitive. Things haven't been developed to the point where you can really clean out a signal in a lot of noise, pull a really clean signal. We have digital television right now. Part of the reason that we went to that is because you either have it on or off. That little dead zone that you might have is very, very small where it goes from working to not working. Back in the day, and many older people like us and our parents will remember that whenever you had over-the-air communications with television, it had an interesting gradual cutoff. You had a little bit of static would go over the picture, then a lot of static. Then you could just hear the sound, maybe, maybe every now and then catch the picture. (laughs) Because of this, the FCC was really, really gung-ho about making sure that you weren't interfering with other people, they weren't interfering with you, so anything electronic had to go through their approval process, and they were very, very, very strict about what they considered to be a bad emission. What a lot of these video game companies found out is like, 
yeah, I'm using this channel three, channel four FM modulator thing on the back of my television to get the signal in there. But because of the way I'm doing that, it also throws Mario down the street. That's bad. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Potentially so. Exactly. Because we have to remember this is very new. The idea that you are going to cast stuff directly to your own device rather than accepting a broadcast signal that is coming over the air to you and all of your closest friends around you for however many mile radius the antenna holds out. That is basically unprecedented. I mean, yes, you had some people doing things like CB radios that could potentially get messy in terms of being in the wrong frequency band or whatever, but even that kind of stuff is dedicated hobbyists. Ordinary Americans just had their radio and their television. All they were doing was tuning to a station that was broadcasting over the air. You didn't have the idea of plugging something else in to that television, because we're talking even before VTRs, which is what they called VCRs at the very beginning, are really a thing. I mean, Betamax comes out in 75, but VCRs are even more expensive than video games. Very few people have those. Basically, VTRs and video games are the two things that it's the first time you're doing this. As a result, the FCC didn't really understand fully what the ramifications were going to be with everybody casting Channel 3 or Channel 4, like you said, from their little box directly into their television. Because they didn't know what the ramifications of that were going to be, they aired completely on the side of caution. You couldn't have any signal leakage. A tiny, tiny amount of signal leakage isn't going to cause your neighbor to suddenly see Space Invaders on their screen if you're playing that on the Atari VCS. We have this little thing called the inverse square law. Mm-hmm. For those who may not know, the inverse square law describes the relationship of intensity to the distance from the source. In most cases, this is simplified as intensity is proportional to 1 over the distance squared. If I double my distance, the intensity will be a quarter of the original. If I triple my distance, the intensity will be one-ninth the original. If I quadruple my distance, then of course I will be experiencing one-sixteenth the original intensity. This can all get a bit complicated and a little bit hard to follow without some diagrams. I will, of course, add some links into the show notes to help you understand if you want to explore this further. I would like to note the entire thing can be a little bit frightening when you think about over-the-air transmissions and how powerful they have to be in order to reach everyone in a large area, say, especially a city. This also explains why you see so many radio towers everywhere. That's so that these signals can reach all the places that they need to go in addition to the interference from structures. Right. Of course, that also is what presents us the problem here, obviously, because if you have too much leakage from your video game system, because your video game system is in the apartment next door to your neighbor's television, and the antenna that is broadcasting their television show is, you know, we'll say for the argument, 50 miles away, that's what gives you the potential to hijack their signal. But at the same time, that signal from 50 miles away is a much stronger signal, even though it's degrading 
as it passes through space, because it starts out as a much stronger signal, it's not like just any old weak old signal you're broadcasting in your own home is going to override that even in its diminished form. The FCC basically said, we can't risk this. We can't have the airways just turned into this wild west where what your neighbor is doing could determine what is going on in your house. It would be cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. Therefore, they said, no interference. If we detect any leakage on this stuff, you're done. We are not having it. Why are we talking about all this science at the top of an episode that talks about the video game market and the retail side of the business? Well, we're talking about it because nearly every single programmable system that comes out between 1976, the Channel F, and 1980 is seriously, seriously affected and oftentimes delayed or ends up having technical problems upon release because of the need to comply with FCC regulations. What happens at that point, then, is you see Texas Instruments decides that they're going to get into the computer market. Texas Instruments is in Texas. They are very well connected politically, and there are several congressmen in Texas that are very powerful within Congress. Basically, when Texas Instruments decides to come in with their computer, because this is affecting computers, too. We're talking about it in consoles, but it was a huge problem with computers. Atari had a major problem with it when they launched their 8-bit line, the 400 and 800. Apple got around it by claiming that their product was an industrial computer. The Apple II was an industrial computer because the standards were lower, because industrial computers tend to be in facilities that are more heavily shielded themselves, plus they tend to be in places that are far away from residential traffic, and so you don't have to shield as heavily. That just reminds me of emission standards, and you go, <laughs> oh, we'll just classify it as a light truck. <laughs> right. It's the same con, exactly. So Apple was like, no, 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 this computer is made for industrial settings. What was that? People are hooking up to televisions? No, 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 no. Do you see an RF modulator in our basic Apple II package? There's no RF modulator here. Now, if somebody decides to buy an RF modulator separately and then hook it up to a television, well, that's their business, but that's not how we're selling it. Not our fault if the public does that. So they actually did not sell the RF modulator with the Apple II in the beginning, so that they could claim it was meant for an industrial setting as a control system and could meet lower standards. Then Texas Instrument comes in and they're like, we're selling a computer, we're selling the computer for the home, and we own congressmen. The law is changing now, okay? Congress and the FCC were like, okay. And that's what happened. So Texas Instruments actually got the standards lowered. So that's why you never hear about the FCC when you talk about Nintendo or Sega or Sony or IBM or any of the stuff that, say, Jeffrey and I grew up with in the mid-80s to early 90s because the standards were relaxed. By that time, they figured out that there was not a broadcast apocalypse on the horizon, even though, yes, there was some behind-the-scenes backroom political maneuverings to make it happen. It still was for the best <laughs> because it turned out everything was fine. But in this period, it's a real problem. And so Fairchild, as we talked about in our Fairchild episode, they had planned to have a full-on product launch in 1976. They end up flunking FCC testing repeatedly. 
They are literally making minor adjustment after minor adjustment. The person that was actually in charge of their production line at this time, Tom Mayer, actually wrote a memoir about his entire life in Silicon Valley. Very little of it is on the video game, but he recounts how Jerry Lawson, the project manager of the Channel F, was at FCC headquarters. Mayer was at the factory where they were trying to get this thing tooled up so that they could launch it. They'd be on the phone every night and Jerry'd be like, "Okay, we've changed this and this now to try to pass the testing. And so then they'd have to change, you know, on the assembly line. I mean, they're trying to figure this out in real time when they were hoping to launch the product at this point. We'll just test it in production. Yeah. And and then get slapped by a hefty fine by the FCC, who will then come in and say, you can't sell this anymore. So that's why they couldn't just fix it, you know, in production. This isn't like, okay, we know this game killer bug is here, but eh, we'll just release a day one patch. There is no day one patching with the FCC. In Soviet America, FCC patches you. Shout out to Quarter Pass, who I know will be listening to this and will absolutely love all of this FCC talk. This is probably the highlight of all of our episodes for Quarter Past. Fairchild misses their launch window. They planned to try to launch it in August, in the fall, so they could build up inventory, uh, build up stock for Christmas. They failed to do that. They finally get it out in November. They had planned to launch with three cartridges, because as we talked in the Fairchild episode, some of these starter cartridges had multiple games on them. But they had planned to launch with three cartridges. They really only got one out in time for the holiday. They sell somewhere between forty and 50000 as near as we can tell from estimates at the time, which... In the context of that market isn't an absolute disaster because everything in regards to these kind of video games is smaller than. Obviously, if the PlayStation 5 had launched to 40,000 in first holiday sales, everyone would be jumping out the windows on the top floor of the Sony building because it would be all over. But it wasn't great for 1976, but it wasn't a disaster either. But they did find they had to raise the price. They had gone in at 150. Then they had to put all of the shielding in, which is expensive because shielding means metal. There's no getting around using expensive metal in shielding at this period of time. I'm sure there probably is now. I'm not up on the latest in industrial engineering. But back then, shielding meant metal, and that's expensive. They had to raise the price to $170 because they could not maintain that $150 price point. RCA gets pushed out of holiday 76 and into the beginning of 77, in part because of FCC difficulties, though I don't think entirely. Atari manages to sidestep this. The reason is their continuing relationship with Sears. Because part of the problem that these companies are having is they've never had to take a complex product like this to market before. Fairchild makes chips. They don't make the things the chips go into. I mean, they tried their hands at digital watches, but there's no interference problems with digital watches. You're not beaming to a television. So they had no idea what they were doing. RCA, obviously, has a consumer division that knows exactly what they're doing. They've been releasing televisions for years and years. But it's not RCA's consumer division that releases the Studio 2. Because of internal politicking and lack of interest in this and that, it was their special products group that released the Studio 2, not their consumer electronics group. And so they were fairly inexperienced. Atari had that Sears relationship, though. Sears was a big seller of televisions, a big seller of radios. And again, they'd have it private label. They actually had manufacturers that built these things for them. 
and then they private labeled it as Sears brand televisions or Sears brand this or Kenwood, I think, was one of the big labels they used for a while, too, in components. They had the knowledge and the expertise and the political connections because Sears is huge. They don't call it the Sears Tower anymore, but the, I guess, now second tallest building in the United States was for you know decades the Sears Tower in Chicago. That's because, yeah, Sears. Because of that, Atari had it easy. I mean, they still had the problem everyone did in that they had to put more shielding in than they would like to, which raises the price comparable to what they wanted to release it at. They didn't fail testing. They didn't have to delay their launch. They got everything through cleanly because of Sears. So they had a decent launch overall in 1977. This is really the start of the market. It's 1977. They sold, looks like, about 340,000 systems. It may have been a little less than that. You know, there's no reliable numbers from this period, but the Warner Annual Report does a breakdown of Atari's total console sales and said that 60% were dedicated consoles, 40% were programmables, and then if you do the math, 40% of the number they gave in that annual report would be 340,000. Some sources put it a little lower than that. Some sources put it closer to 250 or 300,000. Part of that could be sell-in versus sell-through because that's a game that manufacturers like to play. You have two points where a product is bought. You have the point where the manufacturer sells it to retail. It is sold in to the retailer. Then you have the point where the consumer buys it from the retailer. That's when it sells through from the retailer to the consumer. Sometimes if a product has been stagnating on store shelves, the manufacturer will use their shipped number or their sell-in number instead of their sell-through number, because that'll be a bigger number. It's always a bigger number, unless your product is literally sold out. Even if there are only two of your system left on store shelves, that will still be a smaller number than your sell-in number, unless you're completely 100% sold out everywhere. That's a trick that manufacturers will use, and they won't always tell you that that's what they're doing. Sometimes they'll tell you. Other times they'll just leave that nebulous sales word out there and leave it to your imagination what kind of sales those are. You've got this range somewhere between 250,000, 340,000 that Atari sold in 1977 of the VCS. Fairchild, we don't have perfect numbers again, but you're probably looking at somewhere around 150 uh, to 200,000 systems. They're being very conservative. I believe we talked about this in our Fairchild episode because they took a bath in watches. It got bad. They did not want to be caught out in video games. I mean, they were scared to death because if they were caught out in video games in the same way they were caught out in watches, they were just quite simply going to be in serious trouble. They were willing to give up some of the market to make sure they didn't get stuck with inventory. And it wasn't a completely irrational fear because remember, we've seen it already happen in dedicated consoles. We talked about that in the last episode. After that holiday season, because video games are very seasonal in this time period, they are big-ticket purchases you make at the holidays. After Christmas, the value of the previous year's consoles that were still on store shelves, it collapsed. Discount of discount, you know, $70 systems going for $20. I mean, really collapsed. It wasn't a completely irrational fear to be like, oh my gosh, what happens if we're left with these games? 
Now, a bolder company would have said, no, we need to believe in video games, we need to believe in the future of video games, and we'll take that risk. Well, Fairchild just wasn't the company to be that. Atari was willing to take that risk, but they could still only get a certain number of systems ready in time, because even though they didn't have the FCC problems, this is a company that is getting into this kind of manufacturing for the first time. Yes, they've been doing the dedicated systems, but this is a whole new layer of complexity, doing this BCS. It's a complicated piece of uh, equipment, and they don't have manufacturing experience. They have a lot of trouble on their assembly lines. In fact, they end up, I can't remember, we've probably talked about this in an episode before. I mean, we've covered Atari like once, right? We did like 15 minutes in one episode on Atari once, I think. No, no. According to my notes, it was 45 minutes spread over three episodes. <laughs> yes, we've talked about Atari a lot, so I've probably mentioned this. Because they were kind of slow getting an assembly line set up, they decided to keep the lines running until, basically right up until Christmas, because they figured, okay, we've got a good product. We'll just keep making them through the entire season, and then we'll sell them. Turns out that retailers, especially back then, like to have a good idea of what they're going to have by about the beginning of December, December 5th or December 10th, something like that. They don't want to be stuck with stock after Christmas either, because toys at this period of time that we're talking about, things are very different now. Commerce has changed significantly. But toys were something you bought at Christmas. Yes, people have birthdays throughout the year, but birthdays are not usually the big spending times. You don't get the big toys at birthday. I'm talking about in this time period once again, not talking about what may go on today. Christmas was the big spending time. Toy stores basically operated at a loss for three quarters of the year and then made all of their profit in the last quarter of the year during the holidays. There is a reason behind the term Black Friday. Absolutely there is. Toy stores, which is where a lot of the stuff is selling, not exclusively, but toy stores and other department stores, discount stores that are increasing their purchase of these kind of items of toys during the holiday season, they do not want to be caught with excess inventory either because they will not be able to sell it for a profit. Anything that's still on store shelves on January 1st is pretty much worthless. Atari wasn't thinking about this when they ran their lines all the way up to mid-December because they didn't have a lot of experience yet. So they kept manufacturing the system past the date that retailers were willing to buy anymore. So they ended up with a pretty decent chunk of surplus systems. I mean, it wasn't disastrous. We're not talking about millions of unsold systems sitting in a warehouse somewhere. We're talking about a product that they know that they'll be able to sell again next Christmas, too. At least they hope they'll be able to. If things go according to plan, this is not a one-season item. It's not a complete and utter disaster, but still they messed up. I talked to their sales director at the time of their consumer division, Malcolm Kuhn, and he's the one that told me this. I mean, they had screwed up. They had unsold systems. Fairchild went the other way. They probably could have sold a little more than they did, but they really didn't want to be caught out, and so they didn't do much. Studio 2 was just a disaster. There's an interesting story to be had about the Studio 2. Our good friend Kevin Bunch tells some of the story really well on his YouTube channel, the Atari Archive, which is primarily focused on Atari, but he's basically become the expert on the RCA Studio 2 and has gotten research grants and everything to further his research. Big shout out there. But 
There's an interesting story to be had there, one that he tells well and one that I'm sure we'll tell at some point on our podcast. Despite all of the interesting good intentions and some of the ways that that system was actually ahead of its time, the system that was released in 77, it was black and white when everything was color. It did not have separate controllers. It was just keypads right on the system. Not great graphics, not great anything. So it just collapses. It's just a non-entity. Atari and Fairchild between them sell somewhere between 400 and 600,000 systems in 77. Probably could have sold a little more than that if Atari had manufactured sooner and Fairchild had manufactured a little more boldly. Probably not too much more. It is a new market. It is an expensive price point. It takes time for people to realize that this is going to be worth $170 to $190 to bring into the home. At the same time, the dedicated market peaks in 77. We talked about this, of course, but just to put it all back together here again, it does better in 77 than it did in 76, but it didn't do as much better as it was supposed to. It was supposed to climb to 10 million units. It climbed to 5 to 7 million units. The profits really didn't climb that much because there was price erosion. It's kind of a gloomy year for video games, even though on their surface they look very successful. No one's going out of business on this in 1977, except for RCA. RCA discontinues the Studio 2 in February 1978 because it's a mess. Nobody else is really falling apart out of this yet, but it's clear they're going to. That leads us to the crux year of 1978. I'm spending a lot of time on these first two years because these are really the crucial years in getting the entire idea of a programmable video game system established. At this point, you're probably like, oh my God, I've been listening how long? And he's only through 1977. And how many years is he covering? We're doomed. <laughs> but uh, these two years are really the crucial years because this is the point where the public is going to decide, are programmable consoles something we want? As somebody who has consoles from Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo sitting in his home, obviously the public ultimately decided that, yes, this is something we want. But they might not have. 1978 was the crucial year. Atari is going to have its first full year in the market. Remember, when I say they're here all year, they're still going to be doing the vast majority of their business at Christmas time. They're not going to be selling throughout the year in a meaningful way. Obviously, the system will be available, but very few people are going to buy it. They, for the first time, will have a full year to get manufacturing done. So they're not going to have a repeat of the problems they had in 77, where it took them too long to get manufacturing going, and then they didn't have enough systems ready at the Christmas season. Fairchild is still hanging in there. They're trying their best. They're going to release the Channel F2. It's the same system. It's not really a change. What it is, and we talked about this in our Fairchild episode, you know how I said it was more expensive than they meant it to be because of the shielding they had to put in. The Channel F2 was consolidating some of the components onto chips so that they could bring their costs back under control. Taking advantage of that whole Moore's Law thing. Exactly. Then two new companies, well, one new and one old, really, are also getting into the programmable market. Bally, the arcade giant, is going to be in for the first time with their home computer library. They had planned to release it in 1977, but that FCC got involved again and everything was a disaster. First, it delayed their launch. Then they realized that their chips overheated now because of all the shielding. 
Because that's the problem. When you put more shielding in, you're not just trapping radio waves, you're also trapping heat if you don't vent it intelligently. Now, Magnavox is going to be coming in with their programmable system in 1978, the Odyssey 2 or as some people call it, the Odyssey Squared, because the two is a superscript in the way that they write it. Their first programmable system. So now we're going to have a lot of competition. There's even a couple of others that one barely talks about, like APF system, but that's not important. For the first time, we're going to have a real competition in the marketplace between several potentially viable programmable systems. At the same time, the handheld market and kind of the cheaper electronic games market, is about to shoot through the roof because 1978 is the year of Merlin and Simon, both of which we've talked about before. It's also the year Coleco gets in with the sports games. So you have Mattel and Coleco continuing to do those LED sports games. Then you have Parker Brothers with Merlin and Milton Bradley with Simon, which is just an absolute phenomenon, biggest toy anyone's ever seen in years. These are all cheaper products than programmable video game systems. At this period in time, when none of this stuff is very well established yet, retailers don't really see a difference between a video game that you plug into your television and something like Simon, which you stick on a tabletop and then there's just lights and sounds and buttons. Obviously, they can tell these function differently, but it's not like one is an electronic game and one is a video game. They're all electronic games. One just more advanced than the other. Exactly. From the perspective of the retailer, all they can see is, so wait a minute. Last year, last year being 1977, you made me take all of these video games, which we're talking mostly dedicated systems here. You made me buy all of these video games. And then the public said, no thank you, to most of them, at least at their standard price. We had to discount the heck out of them. We didn't make that much money on them. Meanwhile, those little handheld games were making money hand over fist. So now you're telling me you want me to take a more expensive video game and sell that at the same time I sell these cheap electronic handhelds and people are going to go for that. No, sir, I don't like it. (laughs) Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We will take your video game. It is an impressive piece of equipment, and I'm sure some of our more affluent and our higher-end customers will purchase this. But we are not stocking this inventory the way we stocked it in 1977. This is why 1978 was such a critical year. The companies like Atari ramp up their production. Retailers basically say, no, thank you. Atari expends considerable effort to get 800,000 units manufactured for the 78 holiday season, which again may seem like a small number, but in the context of the previous year when the entire market was no more than four to 600,000, that's a significant number. Atari is still trying to get their manufacturing sorted out. They had a lot of quality control issues in the first year. They had to work those out, and so they spent a lot of time figuring out how to better manufacture it as well. The systems made in 78 hold up better than the ones in 77. Retailers collectively say, that's great. I'm glad you have these systems. We'll take 500,000, please. Meanwhile, Magnavox 
has been so spooked by everything that's going on in the market, they at one point nearly abandoned their video game project. Even though they finally do see it through, they run afoul of the FCC. That's, that's a common theme. Even though they launch in 78, they launch later than they wanted, and they launch with a very small number of systems. Fairchild is already scared to death of the market. Now, in the middle of the year, they're finding out retailers don't want so many systems. They're in full-fledged panic mode. They're like, oh, dear, we have to revise our estimates downward significantly, and we're just not going to make that many systems this year. They probably only make about 100,000 or so. Again, we don't have great numbers for them. We're going off of some estimates, but it seems like probably 100,000, 150,000 is what Fairchild does. Magnavox does only about 100,000. That's because they had problems with the line. With the FCC approval, I mean. Atari goes to all this effort to create 800,000 systems and then discovers that retailers will not take them. Now, this isn't a problem with the public, necessarily. This is a problem with retailers. Retailers are the gatekeepers. They're looking at the way dedicated consoles collapsed. Then they're looking at the way electronic handheld games took off, and they decide that is the horse we're betting on. Not video games. This is what leads to the crisis, which we talked about in our Atari episodes, where Bushnell loses control of the company and gets fired because Warner sees these numbers and they're kind of worried and they're saying, what do we do about this? And Nolan Bushnell's saying, we got to cut the price and then we got to make something even more impressive. Then the Warner people are like, if you cut the price now, you're cutting the product off at the knees because you're telling people that this is a cheap product that isn't worth what we're selling it for. When you cut a price too soon, it just creates a perception in people's minds and your product's doomed. And so they get into a big fight over that and Bushnell is asked to leave. There's really nothing they can do but wait and see what happens. It turns out that the public is actually very interested in video games. The public buys just about everything they can get their hands on. The market actually ends up being supply-constrained. So 78 is a light year. It's not a year of great sales. Again, you get various estimates. It was probably somewhere between 600 and 800,000 units. You're looking at Atari providing about 500 of that. Fairchild and Magnavox providing probably about 100,000 each. Then you have a few hangers-on that are also selling a small number of systems as well. It's a relatively small market, but the important thing is people buy the games. This is programmables, right? It's not just about buying the system. It's about we are releasing these separate cartridges with different games on them. And it turns out the games sell well. People are buying like four or five games per system at least of the Atari product. That's good. People are having trouble getting the console that want it. It's the year that proves that video games can exist. It was a very near thing. It's probably a good thing that Atari had Warner's backing and Warner's financial wherewithal to kind of weather this period. Otherwise, that unsold inventory might have really made a problem for them because, again, they wouldn't be able to sell it again until the next Christmas season. I mean, they were going to be in a real bind. Warner was kind of able to help them, you know, figure it out. Finally, we see video games okay. Maybe this is going to work. Going into 1979, the market is steady, but not impressive. Atari makes a real push to make video games a non-seasonal product. 
because they have leftover stock at the end of 78, just because retailers wouldn't buy it, we've got to figure out a way to make this a year-round product. We've got to start unloading some of this inventory. They're the first company, as far as I know, I mean, we don't know as much about some of these other companies, but I think it's reasonable to say that they're the first company that really tried to figure out how to break out of seasonality. Of course, the way they do that is by starting to emphasize big cartridge releases throughout the entire year and to do marketing spend behind them throughout the entire year. Before this, you would basically spend all your marketing dollars around the holiday season, and that's it. In 79, Atari starts doing marketing campaigns year-round, and they start focusing on selling cartridges year-round. Now, as we talked about before, they were not in the razor and razor blades business. This is a misconception that people make about Atari all the time. Razor and razor blades business has as its key predicate that you're basically giving away your core unit. The Razor, in the case of Gillette, who pioneered this, or the VCS console, in the case of Atari. You're basically giving that away, selling it at cost, perhaps even at a slight loss, in order to recoup your money on the software. The blades that fit the Razor, the cartridges that fit the VCS. Atari maintained, as we've said many times before, because this is one of those things I really want to dispel, Atari maintained high margins on their hardware. They made money on their hardware. Razor Razor Blades was a Nintendo thing. It wasn't an Atari thing. But they did understand that they made more money on software because software was cheaper. Most of the early games were 20 bucks. You could sell those year-round. You could market those year-round. That's kind of the story of 79. The story of 79 is everyone kind of getting into a rhythm. Magnavox is still there, shuffling along. They're still kind of not completely enthusiastic about this business. They're not doing great, but they're there. Bally and Fairchild fall apart. Bally was really never suited to the home market. They had no experience there. They had a hard time getting their system around, and they had the disasters with the FCC problems and the shielding and overheating problems in 77 that delayed the launch of the system that they never really recovered from. Fairchild is just in trouble generally. They never attacked the video game market hard enough to make a lot of money there, and other areas of the company, like digital watches, were still such a drain on them that they finally end up sold to another company. That other company just isn't interested in the consumer business. Basically, everyone was of the agreement that Fairchild getting into consumer products, consumer electronics, was a huge mistake. Let's pull back from that, focus on chips. We know how to do that. Let's not do this consumer electronic thing anymore. So they fade away. You're left in 79, basically, and there were some other things in the market, but basically you're left with Atari and Magnavox. It's not even close between the two. Atari sells about another 600,000 systems, which isn't that great an increase from the year before. They sold, you know, I said 500,000 earlier, it might have only been 400,000. They sold like four to 500,000 systems. We're going off estimates again. In 78, they bumped that up to 600,000. In 79, they've got about 1.3 million systems on the market at this point. I mean, they're the first programmable system ever to reach a million. I mean, they're not doing terrible, but they're just kind of coasting along. But they're figuring it out, right? They're doing okay financially now. After two years where the consumer division was a real drag, 77, 78, they actually lost money both years, not millions and millions, not video game crash levels of money when they lost over $500 million in a year. But they did lose a little bit of money those two years. 79, they've stabilized. They figured out how to advertise this stuff year-round. 
They figured out how to get a flow going on cartridge releases, and they upped their sales a little bit. So, you know, they're kind of there. Magnavox, they probably only sell between 100 and 200,000 units. The number I have in my book is 125,000. Again, there are different estimates. None of it's certain. We don't have direct numbers from Magnavox. But probably 100,000 to 200,000 systems. It's just not getting the same support from its corporate overlords. Philips, I think, that Atari is getting from its corporate overlords at Warner. So that's 79. After spending a million years on 77 and 78, we can basically dispense with 79 right there. They're getting sold. It's clear now that people want them. Retailers are now okay with stocking them. But the market still lacks that killer app, and we've talked about this before. The games that come out in these first years, 77 to 79, they're very, very basic. A lot of them aren't that interesting. There's attempts at doing sports, baseball, football. The VCS, it has so little capability to generate sprites and animations and background play fields and all of this that you can't really make a good baseball game on the system. Later on, they get some that are a little better as people learn more and more tricks. But this is at the beginning, and and you can't make a credible baseball game or football game really on the VCS. The Odyssey's not really any better. The Bally system is powerful enough. It actually has a pretty interesting football game, but Bally has basically already blown their shot because they have no idea what they're doing in consumer electronics. They really just need to stick to arcades and casinos and later fitness centers. You can listen to our Bally episode for that. Then there's card games. There's casino games. There's slot machines. There's blackjack. There's poker. And it's like, okay, great, but do you really want to play blackjack on a very primitive console where you have to use a joystick to clunkily move around the screen to select cards and why not just find a friend and a deck of cards and play blackjack this nice set of poker chips that my grandfather left me exactly you've got some arcade conversions on there some coin-op conversions but remember i mean we've done episodes on the early coin-op market too there's not much going on in those early coin-op games What little is going on in a game like Tank or Grand Track or Fire Truck or something like that is that the coin-operated hardware does things to make it more interesting. You know, like it's a racing game where you have a real steering wheel and a real pedal, or you've got silk-screened graphics elements or sculpted graphical elements that are projected where the gameplay is projected with a mirror, and you have elaborate sound systems for the time that are better than the sound systems you can get at home. So there are tricks that they use in the arcade, even in the 70s, to make games with relatively limited gameplay engaging and interesting. You can't replicate those tricks at home. There are a couple of fun games on these systems. Combat, which I know you're familiar with because you have that with the VCS you inherited. That is a fun game to waste a little time with at home, especially when you recall that's all you have back then, unlike today when we have many things that can distract us. I mean, that's a good, solid game, right? Combat. Definitely. It's a lot of fun. You, a sibling, parent, can easily spend a couple hours playing that on a weekend. Exactly. But a game like Combat was the exception, not the rule. Most of those early coin-op games had very simplistic gameplay. When you took out the bells and whistles and fancy control schemes of the arcade and the 
added tension that comes from the fact that you have to keep alive or keep meeting the time trials or whatever because you've got money riding on it because you're paying for it one quarter at a time. When you take all of that out of it, a lot of these early games just aren't that exciting in the home. Then you have educational games where it's like, okay, fine. Eventually, console companies just realized, okay, we can stop trying to convince the parents that there's educational value. I think the Famicom is the last system that went that route of having a couple of educational games, uh, Donkey Kong Math, most notably. Everyone finally decided, okay, fine, we're going to stop this now. We're not going to pretend there's an added value to it. I think they did that in the early days because it's new and... A lot of families at that time only have one television, and of course, if the child is playing the game on the television, then the parents aren't watching television, and so they felt they needed more things to kind of convince mom and dad it's okay. You know, oh, look, Johnny can learn math as well, and mom and dad can play blackjack. It's like, <laughs> whatever. That goes away after a while. The point is, there's not much happening here, really. They're not that exciting. Video games are kind of boring in 1979, at least in the home. I mean, there's some exciting stuff going on in, in the arcade, but it's a completely different way of engaging with a game. Home video games are boring. So people that are curious about new technology or people that are particularly into coin-op games and are like, okay, well, maybe they're not as impressive, but at least we won't spend all our quarters on them when we bring them home. You know, you have adopters. Most people are just kind of meh. Atari only has about 1.3 million systems sold by the end of the year. Magnavox has somewhere between two and 300,000 systems sold by the end of the year. Fairchild has probably sold about 300,000 systems lifetime. Fairchild's out. They're done. They're not going to sell anymore. The other companies like Bally or APF, which we didn't really talk about, they're doing even worse. It's not much of a market, and it really doesn't change until 1980. 1980 is the year that video games become a capital B big deal. There are two things that drive that. There are things we've talked about before, but again, as part of this overview episode, we're kind of bringing this all together. One of those things is that Mattel comes out with the Intellivision. Mattel starts exploring this video game space as early as 1977, but they're coming at it at a rather awkward time when that market is just about to fall apart. Mattel is a toy company. They don't have electronics expertise in-house, not much of it. Their early electronic handheld games were contracted out to other companies like Chipmaker Rockwell and a technology consulting firm in Southern California called APH. They weren't doing a lot of in-house stuff. They did have a couple of people on staff that knew how the stuff worked and could work with it. These people more served as project leaders than having the whole thing done in-house. They need to partner with a company to do this. Fortunately, there are a few companies out there because this is right at the end of the period where this is all overheating. Remember we talked about this last episode. The chip companies have a vested interest in going to mass-market consumer products because they're going to sell way more chips. Throughout this period of the 70s, they've been transitioning from we are only doing small-scale manufacturing for defense projects and other really specialized R&D projects to let's do mass-market consumer chip manufacturing. 
So they've got a vested interest in this. This is the period video games are at the tail end of being hot in their first wave, but they are still considered hot until the 1977 Christmas season just kind of makes everyone put their head in their hands and be like, oh my God, what have I done? Dave Chandler at Mattel, who kind of is the person at Mattel that's in charge of all this, meets with National Semiconductor and General Instrument, both of which have chips that could be good for consoles. General Instrument, which of course we talked about last episode as being one of the main drivers of new home gameplay concepts in this time period, even has a kind of off-the-shelf programmable system using their own processor and their own video chip and whatnot, all GI chips, that you could potentially use to form the basis of a private label programmable console. Now, some people get confused. There are a lot of similarities between this Gemini system, this general instrument programmable system that they had in their catalog, and the Mattel in television that ultimately comes out. But they are different projects. I actually talked to one of the chip designers at General Instrument. It's not like they took the Gemini and said, we'd like one of those, but make this change, this change, this change, and became the Intellivision. Gemini is a separate thing, but it uses some of the same components, so that's why this confusion comes into play. Mattel looks at General Instrument and National Semiconductor and says, you've got some interesting stuff. Let's make a couple of changes on what you have, and then we'll evaluate you. Then they chose National Semiconductor. They thought that National Semiconductor had the better overall system. They go to the final closing meeting with the National Semiconductor people where they're going to shake hands and sign the agreement on creating this console together. National Semiconductor says, no, 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 don't. This is a horrible mistake. You do not want to do this. Video games are done. Everything is on fire. I am on fire right in front of you. Can't you tell? For God's sake, do not do video games. That ended quickly. (laughs) And so Mattel's like, oh. And so then Mattel management is like, maybe we should pause for a moment and think about this. They didn't cancel it. But they were like, maybe we all need to take a deep breath and see what we're doing here. But in the end, as we said, the video game market doesn't end up being as apocalyptic as everyone feared. The programmables are selling, even if they're not selling in huge numbers. And so Mattel's like, okay, fine, let's do this. So they partner with General Instrument. They use a General Instrument 16-bit processor, though it didn't use all the pens. The bus is only 10-bit. It's technically the first 16-bit video game system, but it does not use all of those pens. It does not address all of that. The bus is 10 bits wide. They take this 16-bit General Instrument chip. They take this custom graphics chip, the stick chip and a couple of other custom components, and they build a video game system, which, of course, becomes the Intellivision. They hoped to launch it in 1978. It ends up taking too long to get the chips done. These are complicated chips. Almost every video game system in this time period got delayed to one degree or another, and it was either because the FCC yelled at them, the chips didn't get done, or both. In Fairchild's case, it was the FCC yelled at them. In Mattel's case, it was the chips couldn't get done in time. In Magnavox's case, it was both. They had delays because they were working with Intel, and Intel couldn't get the custom chips done in time, plus the FCC yelled at them. That's kind of a common refrain here. They hope to launch in 78. They can't. Then they hope to have a fairly robust test launch in 1979. Once again, they can't. They do launch in 79, but Mattel does a very limited test market in Fresno, California. I actually asked the head of Mattel Electronics at the time, why Fresno? His answer was basically, well, we had no idea how many 
systems we were going to be able to get made for the holiday season. The department store that was based in Fresno, Gottschalk's, which was a regional chain. They didn't just have their location in Fresno. They had a few other locations in that part of California as well, were very understanding and were willing to work with us despite having no idea what we were going to give them. So why Fresno? It's because that's where a retailer was willing to be like, we don't care if we don't get everything you promised us, is basically what it comes down to. Their original manufacturing partner, Sylvania, also managed to get some systems out. They hit the test market in Fresno. They also sold a few more systems than that elsewhere, but they had planned to have a multi-city major test market. Not like Nintendo's New York test market in 85, but more like what Nintendo did in 1986 in the first half of the year when they were in New York, L.A., Chicago, and a few other cities. We're going to do partial rollout in 79, full rollout in 80. Turned out being a minuscule test market in 79. They may have sold as many as 50,000 systems. That's what one estimate says, though sometimes first-year estimates can be funny. Sometimes analysts go back and manufacture those because they weren't tracking at the time. They do a formula, how much percent is it growing every year, and then they use that formula to not only estimate forwards but also fill in backwards. It may be that they sold less than 50,000. That seems pretty high considering how limited their test market was. But they certainly sold no more than that, and they may have sold less than that. Really, 1980 was their coming out. So for all intents and purposes, the Intellivision is a 1980 system. What the Intellivision did is that it provided a sophisticated piece of hardware that could render very, very nice backgrounds. Again, for the time, we're not talking like pretty NES tiled backgrounds here, but we're talking about more background than a few blocks, which is mostly what the VCS and the Odyssey 2 did. It could render very nice, colorful backgrounds. It could handle more sprites on the screen at once. For the first time, sports games in the home are truly interesting. They have a really good baseball game. They have a really good football game, again, for the time. But it's much better than what Atari has, so much better than what Atari has that they do competitive advertising where they got George Plimpton on a screen, and we'll put some of those in the show notes as we have in the past. He compares the Atari sports games and the Intellivision sports games on television and is like, you can clearly see which one is better. It's gimmicky and obviously it's biased, but he's right. They are better. (laughs) I mean, it's a more powerful system. Now, you're paying for that more powerful system. You're paying $275 for it. In 1980s money. In 1980 money. That's a lot. Remember, the VCS at this point retails for about $190, almost $100 less. Some places are discounting it even more than that. It's a lot more expensive. But for the first time, you're seeing evidence that video games can be somewhat sophisticated in the home. That the arcade or the local bar or whatever is not the only place you can go to get sophisticated video games. And I think that's important, even though the Intellivision is outsold by the VCS almost three to one, around three to one throughout this entire period. I think the presence of the Intellivision there showing that a high-end option exists is important even outside of sales. That's one thing that makes 1980 big. And, of course, the other thing that makes 1980 big is Space Invaders. Space Invaders? No one liked that game. (laughs) Space Invaders is the first arcade game that you could bring to the home and still capture some of that magic. Now, it's 2600 Space Invaders, VCS Space Invaders... Anything really like the arcade game? Well, in a lot of ways, no. 
The graphics are much worse. The sounds are much worse. There are fewer aliens on the screen. Even with these limitations, it plays similar enough. It plays close enough. You still have the rows of advancing aliens. They're still shooting at you. You still have the bunkers. You still have the flying saucer that comes by for bonus points. You still have the invaders getting faster as you kill them. Some of that excitement of the coin-operated space invaders translates into the home. It still captures some of it. You can still have fun with it in the home. You can still feel like you've had a good time. And it has some utility in practicing for the arcade if you're a score chaser. It's not a perfect one-to-one comparison. It's not going to make you an automatically an expert Space Invaders player in coin-op if you're going to play it in the home. But it's close enough that it helps. So it makes sense as score chasing becomes a bigger thing. Obviously, Space Invaders is followed by Galaxian and Asteroids. Pac-Man is a little less of a score-chasing game just because it doesn't have a high-score table, but it still has a high score. Pac-Man, as these games come in, as score-chasing becomes a thing, there becomes a logic to being, well, let's play them at home. We don't have to spend so many quarters. We can have fun in the home. We can practice in the home. Then we can still go out to the arcade and put to use some of what we learned, even if it's not a perfect one-for-one comparison. Space Invaders kind of starts that process. This is the point where it's like, okay, we're going to bring arcade games home. And these coin-op games have blown up huge in arcades, and now they're going to blow up huge in the home. So Space Invaders is a hit in the home. Defender is a hit in the home. Pac-Man is a hit in the home. Pac-Man has issues. We've talked about that. But selling lots and lots of copies is not one of them. Missile Command is another good example. 1980 is the year where it's finally okay Video games are here. Atari sells like a million VCS systems. Mattel sells hundreds of thousands of Intellivision systems. Even Magnavox starts to see their sales tick up a little bit, though they're definitely going to be the underdog here. They're not going to suddenly take over this market. I mean, they're definitely an also-ran. Everyone's seeing their sales go up in 1980. You're looking at more like between 1.7 and 2 million consoles being sold. You're seeing millions of cartridges being sold. Everything is fine. This will go on forever. Yep. You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars worth of video games being sold. It's a great year. And 81 is an even better year. You're talking about 3 million, 4 million in console sales. You have Asteroids and Missile Command hitting on the VCS. You have the Intellivision continuing to release more and more games and starting to release some of their own action games to complement their sports games to tap into this. You get licensing becoming the big way that things are done. You see cartridge prices going up. Part of that is that the cost of materials have gone up. They're using 4K ROMs more frequently rather than 2K ROMs. So there is a higher components cost, but... Part of it is that they realize that they can jack up the price of those cartridges a little bit, sell them year-round, and make a huge profit on this. Again, it's not razor razor blades because they're selling the hardware at profit too, but it's a realization that the software is going to be a huge moneymaker. As I think we talked about in another episode, retailers start doing a little of the razor razor blade stuff themselves because even though Atari never has an official price cut, even though it remains a $190 system, retailers start selling it for as low as $140. They voluntarily forego their profits because they know that they're going to make their money in software. 
even though Atari itself doesn't go razor, razor blade, major retailers do kind of take it razor, razor blade by offering their own discounts. Mattel brings the price down a little bit over time. They can't really bring it down too much, but Intellivision start selling closer to $250, $230. They start offering rebates. They never take more than about 15% of the market, but they're viable. They're profitable. I mean, they're doing fine. Magnavox, you know, a little iffy, but they're still there. They're still in there. Then in 82, you get one final competitor in right before the end of everything. A competitor that really kind of shows where the future of the market is going to go, but where it could have gone, of course, if the whole thing hadn't fallen apart. And that's Coleco coming in with ColecoVision. The thing that makes ColecoVision so impressive is that they set out to make a truly near-arcade perfect system for the time. I mean, arcade perfect to kind of play the hits of 1980-81, not necessarily to play the latest games coming out 82-83, but a system where you can see a game like Donkey Kong, which of course is the big launch title for ColecoVision, and be like, oh my gosh, that looks almost exactly like the arcade. They're getting more RAM in there. RAM has come down in price enough now that you can get enough RAM in there to do a better job with everything. That was one of the real limiters on the VCS, especially with its 128 bytes. But even on the Intellivision is RAM in this period was super expensive. I mean, RAM's always expensive, but more is law. You know, you can stick more RAM, better RAM in over time at a cheaper price, even if the top of the line stuff is still expensive. ColecoVision gets more RAM in there. It has more sophisticated graphics chip, Texas Instrument chip. It has the Z80 processor, which is a real step up in some ways from the uh, the 6502 and the VCS. We've done episodes on Coleco, so of course you can get all the details on the creation of the ColecoVision there. ColecoVision comes in and it shows a clear generational leap. For the first time, you're seeing games in the home that credibly look like the games in the arcade. That's a big moment. And in early 1983, the ColecoVision actually outsells Mattel and Atari. Atari comes out with a new system in 82 as well because the VCS is getting long in the tooth, but it was created as an Intellivision killer. It's a little better, I mean, better subjective, but their goal was to make something a little better than the Intellivision. And then the ColecoVision comes out of nowhere. No one saw that system coming. It truly took people by surprise within the industry. So they were completely blindsided by that. You know, people do comparisons. There are a couple of things that the 5200 does better than the ColecoVision. They're fairly comparable systems, but if Atari had been trying to combat the ColecoVision instead of the Intellivision, they would have undoubtedly gone about it a slightly different way than they did. ColecoVision overall, I think it's fair to say, is a better system, though it's close. It's definitely close. Atari kind of stumbles out of the gate. With that new Atari 5200 system, its biggest problems being the non-centering joysticks. It has analog joysticks, but they're not self-centering. They're very floppy. There's no spring in there to reset them to neutral position. They went with an analog system, presumably as a counterbalance to the disc that the Intellivision had to control things, which was a pretty awful thing to use, but it was an attempt to give a greater degree of freedom of movement. And so Atari was basically like, We'll show you. We'll do an analog joystick. That's even better. Analog joysticks are great, but the problem is the arcade hits of this time period were not using analog movement. (laughs) Pac-Man is the big hit in the arcade, right? 
There is no analog movement in Pac-Man. You need precision control, precision turns with a digital joystick to do that. If you have a floppy analog stick, you just can't play Pac-Man <laughs> very well on a 5200. It's it's the wrong solution at the wrong time. And if it had a self-centering spring, it might have been okay, but it didn't. It wasn't enough of a step up from the 2600. People already had a lot of these games on the 2600. They didn't necessarily want to get a 5200 to buy all the same games again, and so they naturally gravitated instead towards ColecoVision because ColecoVision is a whole new system. It can play these near-arcade quality games like Donkey Kong. Oh, and by the way, they release an adapter so that it can play all the old Atari VCS games as well. There's a legal case over that, obviously, but this is the Wild West of this kind of intellectual property stuff, so they put out an adapter that allows you to play VCS games. ColecoVision starts stealing thunder. I mean, they only sell 550000 in the first holiday season, which is obviously a lot less than what Atari and even less than what Mattel's doing. But that's because they're ramping up production. As we've seen with all of these systems, when you're first starting out, there's a period of ramping up. They sold out of everything they could make. It's an unqualified success. But then the reports are that in early 1983, we only have estimates on all of this stuff, but that in early 1983, Coleco is outselling both Atari and Mattel. The figures that I have, which were, again, estimates, are that Coleco sold 900,000 ColecoVisions in the first half of 1983. That's in addition to the 550 they sold previously, so they've sold about 1.4 million total. Atari had only sold 800,000 units in that period of time. That's VCS and 5200 combined. Mattel, who usually trails, so it's not a surprise, had only sold 300,000 players. Now, that's the first part of the year. That's not the big sales season. That doesn't mean that Atari may not have, in a normal market, maybe rebounded with a huge marketing campaign and huge manufacturing capacity and more hot licenses. They may have rebounded in a normal market in 1983 and ended up outselling ColecoVision. But the trends were that ColecoVision was going to take over the market, potentially, which is a pretty big deal. I should have mentioned it. It came in at a price of about $190 which was the same as where the VCS started. Now, the VCS was usually being sold for less than that by this point, but it came in at about $190. That made it cheaper than the Intellivision and not that much more expensive than a VCS with a noticeable jump in quality. You can really see a tangible benefit to spending a little bit more. Right, but it's not so much more like the Intellivision was because you could see the enhancement and the benefit in the Intellivision, but then... Mattel was like, and by the way, give us $275. And then people were like, I don't know about that. The uh, 5200, in contrast, was a $270 system. Coleco was slightly more expensive than the 5200. Again, the 5200 had some of its own problems, like the joysticks, like the fact that a lot of the games being released for it were the same games being released on the VCS. So, yes. They looked and played better in a lot of cases, but if you already own all of the games on the VCS, are you really going to go out and get a slightly better version of a game that you already own, or are you going to go buy Donkey Kong on the ColecoVision? Donkey Kong was also released on the VCS, but obviously the version on the ColecoVision was much better, and in this case, it's not about do I buy a slightly better version of a game I already have, it's I could buy Donkey Kong on my VCS, or I could buy the shiny new ColecoVision with Donkey Kong. It hit a good price point, it hit a good quality level, 
and it had just enough interesting licenses, at least in the short term. I'm not sure they could have kept up long term because in 1983, you see a lot of the biggest licenses coming out on Atari systems again. Some of them being Atari licenses and some of them being from like Parker Brothers. It's interesting to wonder whether ColecoVision could have really sustained itself against Atari if the crash hadn't happened. You're starting to get that first market transition. A lot of people try to say that Atari held onto the VCS too long, and that was one of the problems with the crash. We're not going to relitigate the whole crash here again. We've done that. But I don't think that's a fair statement because the 5200 did come out in 1982, which was five years after the VCS. They had an idea about the five-year console life cycle even then. It's just, for a variety of reasons, it was too little too late, and Coleco was starting to leapfrog them. But you had a transition starting, because five years after the VCS, you had 5200 and ColecoVision come out. Magnavox and Mattel got into the market slightly later than Atari did. Magnavox did in 78, Mattel 79, but really 80. They were looking at new systems that were going to be on the market by 1984. There was actually an orderly console transition happening. The people that say part of the reason for the crash was people refused to transition off the old consoles, they're wrong. The transition was happening, and it was an orderly transition. It's just that the stock problems that we've talked about in prior episodes, the overordering and all of that, sunk the market before that transition could fully take effect, and so the market collapsed faster than anyone thought. Not to mention the whole logistics issue of we're not matching accounts receivable with accounts payable. Yes, that may have been happening at Atari, as we talked about. There really was a console transition going on here. You can see it. It just gets buried by the crash, and people kind of dismiss the 5200 as a mistake and the ColecoVision as a too little too late, when in fact that was the transition. It just got buried by the crash. That, in a nutshell, is basically what happened with programmable consoles between 1976-77 at the start to 82-83 when things started to fall apart. There's a hard stop there because of the crash. Some of the trends kind of have to get restarted by Nintendo and then later by its competitors like Sega and Sony. But you can see a lot of that same process working itself out in this period that would have to work itself out again. It all got cut short when the market went kablooey. It would have been really interesting if the crash never did happen and we could see the orderly transition on and so forth. It's also really fascinating to see that the Intellivision had a 16-bit processor that they only used 10 pins on. I don't know all the technical details there, but I'm sure it was down to a matter of cost and all of that kind of thing. Well, that's why I'm desoldering it so I can take advantage of this 16-bit chip, and then I'm (laughs) going to put it in this Intellivision here, and then I'm going to jerry-rig this pins so that I can plug this cartridge of Chrono Trigger into that, so that we have a ColecoVision Mm. that is powered by an Intellivision 16-bit processor. The Super Nintendo is 16-bit. Therefore, I should be able to make one stable wormhole that will get us somewhere in time. So where shall I program this to? (laughs) Well... We're not going to actually go too far forward in time. You may not need to risk destroying the entire universe. Really, I think we're going to take off right where we left off in this kind of same time period with a little game series called Ultima that I believe you may have heard of. I thought we talked about Ultima before. We certainly did a thing about Richard Garriott. We did a thing about Origin Systems. We did. Absolutely. We cannot 
talk about anything anymore without touching on stuff where we've already been. But we did have a listener uh, provide some feedback recently and mention that they were disappointed. It's way too strong a word because they really enjoy the podcast, but they were wishing that we had maybe done some more with Ultima 4, a very influential game that they also quite enjoyed. They hadn't realized uh, that we had done an origin episode because that's like episode 38 or something. And we've done like a hundred more than that now. So we have a lot of episodes, but we haven't done a deep dive into the Ultima series specifically. Now, we're not going to just focus on Ultima 4. We very rarely do a single game. It, it has happened from time to time, even though Ultima 4 is a game that would probably be worthy of a deep dive. Sometimes it's just a matter of where the sources are, and I don't know that we could do a whole episode in the format that we do it just talking about Ultima 4. I mean, obviously you could go in-depth on gameplay systems and plot and all of that kind of thing, and you could get probably more than one episode out of it, but that's never really been our focus. It's really the stories behind the development of the games and the story behind the business of the games. There's definitely enough there to do one or two. We'll see how it goes episodes on the mainline Ultima series, from Akalabeth, which is often called Ultima Zero, all the way up to Ultima 9, not really getting into Ultima Online or some of the other Ultima spinoffs that were done from time to time, but just kind of focusing on the main series. It's an interesting story, and it's an interesting story that shows kind of how video game, or uh, in this case computer game development, changed over time as well, because part of the story of Ultima is the story about how Lord British Richard Garriott is just a geek, <laughs> a nerd, just like any of us, that is like, wouldn't it be fun to make my own games? Then is like, and maybe I can sell my own games. And then it's like, maybe I should take the creation of my games a little more seriously and not just make games where it's like, now Richard throws in everything he thinks is cool and actually puts some more thought into the development of the games and then to... Maybe these games are getting so big that I can't do all the work anymore, and now Ultima is not really Lord British, but it's a whole team of people working with Lord British. So because the series spans such a number of years, you can really kind of take a look at the way computer game design changed over that time in addition to just covering the Ultima series. And so I, I think we can have a really good discussion on all of that that does not completely overlap with some of what we've already done with uh, Lord British and with Origin Systems. All right, I guess I'm just going to have to shove this 16-bit time portal chrono trigger thing. We're just going to have to go down to our local computer store and buy an industrial Apple II. That's probably for the best, because somehow you were going to manifest Lavos. Even though Lavos is a fictional thing, somehow Lavos would have destroyed the Earth if we had gone down this path. So it's probably for the best. I still reserve the right to use it if we need it. <laughs> anyway. Apart from that, as a additional aside notes here, Alex, you've been doing sneaky things behind my back. I have been? Yes. Really? Yes, you have. I've happened to listen to you twice on other podcasts. Oh my gosh. How did that happen? I, 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 I swear, it's, it's just, it's, it's not what you think. Um, they offered me free publicity and, and I said yes. <laughs> I'm weak, okay? I'm sorry. We do, sometimes as a pair, sometimes uh, just me, try to uh, spread our wings a little bit and appear in other places when other places are, are nice enough to have us. We've put up some of those appearances in the past. In the past few weeks, we've had a couple of more of those. The Video Game History Hour, 
which I had already appeared on once before, was gracious enough to have me back. We talked a little bit about Space War, kind of the timeline of how that game was created, tying into my blog, which I've started occasionally updating again. It was updating on a weekly basis, and then life happens. Plus, I still have a 600-page book I'm theoretically in the process of writing. So after doing it weekly for a few weeks, it's now more of a irregular series of Wednesday blog posts where I annotate my book. Because I had done a Space War blog post, they had me on. We talked about that. I urge you to check that out, as well as the entire podcast. The Video Game History Foundation is doing such important work in game preservation that they deserve all our support. I encourage you to listen to all of their episodes. They get very interesting guests on, not just me. So that's one. The other is Super Mega Crash Brothers Turbo, which is a podcast that kind of does a combination of current video game news interspersed with some light dives into uh, video game history. So they also asked me on to just talk about myself and my work. We will put links to uh, both of those podcasts in the show notes, as we always do. I guess the only other last nightmarish thing to traumatize you people with is the fact that you're going to have to put up with our smiling faces again soon. That's right. So uh, it's that time of year again where we tried to do a super marathon live stream of a recording. It could be more complicated this year for certain IRL reasons, but we hope to still be able to get that thrown together. This time, we plan to make our elaborate three-parter on the history of video game hardware which is going to be really interesting considering how absolutely non-technical I am. (laughs) I might actually have to do some research. That's right. I mean, you can't do this as long as we've been doing this without picking up some of the basics. I mean, I could never build a video game console, but I mean, I do know what a DMA interrupt is and what a bus is and stuff like that. So, I mean, I can talk about it in a semi-intelligent manner. It's not like we're going to go really deep diving into technical details. We're not going to put up a pinout of a 6502 and tell you what all the calls are to the processor. I mean, it's not that kind of deep dive. Kind of a look at how video game history was shaped by the hardware. Obviously, the hardware dictates a lot of things. It dictates graphical fidelity, how large games can be and things like that. But it also dictates in subtle other ways as well. The NES has a lot of side-scrolling platformer games because that's something the NES does well and does better than it would do certain other things. So kind of examining how the hardware also influences what kinds of games get made and get played. So that's in theory, and in practice, it'll probably be a complete disaster. But the good news is you can tune in and watch it happen in real time. If you ever watched the movie Titanic and were like, boy... Do I wish I could watch something like that happening in real time right in front of me? You can stream our podcast recording, right, Jeffrey? Of course you can. And that will, of course, be again on Twitch.tv, our TCW podcast channel. The exact date we haven't hammered out yet, but we know what it's going to be about. (laughs) We have that to look forward to. So we're going to announce that actual date and recording process at some point here. It might be a little later than the last couple of years. There are some IRL things. Nobody's dying or anything. Nothing bad. It's all good. But there are some IRL things that really can't fully talk about yet that may mean we have to to delay this. 
We will get it out this year, even even if we do it more in the fall than in the summer, as, as we're accustomed to, because we do like to do one of these a year. It's a lot of fun. Sometimes I give things away. <laughs> That's true, too. Speaking of things I give away, you can still just message me, DM me, email me, whatever me. Say, hey, nice Jeffrey type person. Can I have a nice stickers? And I'll give you many stickers. And I'll mail it directly to you. I don't care where you live. I have people in Japan who got stickers, people in the Czech Republic who got stickers, England, the Netherlands. I don't care where you are. I'll just send you stickers. They are very nice stickers, I have to say. They turned out well. There you go. A little bonus treat for you all. Anyway, I think that pretty much wraps up everything with this episode. I've been Jeffrey. And I've been Alex. And we'll see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.